A Life to Die For, a podcast presented to you by Melanie Limi and Elodie Fuentes. A podcast about life, death, and the idea that becoming friends with death might help us have more meaningful lives. Talking about it won't kill us, but instead might help us live better. Catherine Mannix worked as a palliative care doctor for 30 years, meeting and caring for more than 10,000 people facing the end of their lives. She took early retirement to look for a way to improve public understanding of dying, to replace inaccurate TV drama and newspaper stories with more realistic stories of the way people live while they are dying. She wrote a book about her medical experiences. To her astonishment, with the end in mind, became a bestseller and its success has led to invitations to speak about dying across the UK and Ireland and around the world. Her hope is that all of us can know more, plan better and be less afraid when we are facing the death of someone we love or when we find ourselves living the last part of our own lives. Hi, Catherine. Hello, Hi, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for being here. <laughs> It's so lovely to join you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we are really delighted and feel very honored that you have decided to come on this podcast episode. And I suppose to open our conversation with you, we would like to ask you a question, which we ask all our guests, and that is, what does death mean for you? And you can answer that from a personal perspective, from the perspective of a doctor? So death, really, really great question. And so many answers in my head here. But I think the thing that I'm primarily uh, concerned about, about death is the public's misunderstanding of the process of dying itself and how frightened it makes people. And because people are very frightened, they avoid talking about it. Um, because they avoid talking about it, of course, they don't get any preparation done. And my experience is that in talking to people about what to expect and helping them to understand the process, they feel very much less afraid. And as I go through my lifetime of caring for people at the very end of their lives, I've become progressively less afraid too, because I can see it's a recognizable and manageable process that we all could talk to each other better about and, and be better prepared for. Mm -hmm. Yes. So after having been at the bedside of so many people um, who were in the final stages of their life or in the process of dying and with their families too, um, what do you think really makes a good death for the dying person and the people involved in their care? Mm, good question, because they're not necessarily exactly the same thing, are they? Mm. So there's something about being ready for the dying person and also for their loved ones. But my observation is that actually nobody's ever really completely ready. Even, mm. even on the very last day, people are still hoping for another few days, another few hours. Um, 
or sometimes if it's been a really difficult illness, perhaps people thinking this already has lasted too long. And yet maybe, maybe there might be a moment in which this person might wake up again and say something that's really important. So everybody's waiting for one more thing, one more moment. Um, and that's so, so unusual. You know, there's reports in the newspapers from time to time of people having this terminal lucidity is the, is the term for it. And it does happen, but it's incredibly rare. So for the dying person, I think it's about having completed their business so that they can relax into it. And for mm. the people who I've looked after, very often it's about knowing that what's going to happen when they're beyond the point of being able to comfort the people they love, who they hope will be around them, what's going to happen is not going to be frightening for them, that they're going to see something that is going to be sad because it's the end of somebody's life, it's a farewell and you can't stop it from being sad, but it won't be frightening or traumatic or, or leave them dreading other deaths of other people that they love or dreading their own deaths. So for dying people, it's about making peace with the fact that it's approaching, finishing whatever business it's important for them to finish. Um, and very often that's about um, after death admin, like funerals and wills. But it's also about repairing relationships and, and leaving those loose ends as tidy as they can be, isn't it? I think for people around the bed... It's having had an opportunity not to leave important things unsaid mm. and to be able to understand the process as they're watching it happen. Mm. So as somebody becomes very deeply unconscious and their breathing becomes just automatic breathing cycles for families to understand that that breathing can be noisy. It can sound labored. It can be fast and sound a bit breathless. It can have pauses in it. And that none of those things indicate that the person is suffering. Mm. That it actually tells us that this is unconsciousness, that we can listen to that very familiar cycle to those of us who are used to being at deathbeds and be able to say to the family, in all honesty, this person who you love, they are now deeply unconscious. This is the breathing of an unconscious person. This is not distressing for them. And, you know, please, as you listen to it, don't, misinterpret it as distress because that will make you very sad and frightened about something that isn't sad and frightening for this person that you love and then there's that thing isn't there for people around a deathbed of needing to be there for the last breath um, and it seems to feel very important to people and yet how often and, and Mel I know you'll be familiar with this how often the person takes their last breath in the only few seconds that there's nobody in the room you know, so much more often than could be by chance and and what is that about that is so fascinating well yeah I mean I've worked with so many clients um you know who were going through grief and bereavement and to some of them this happened where the husband or wife or father or mother would leave while they were not in the room and you describe that in your book as well and with the end in mind and then there are also people who seem to wait just for the moment when you are back in the room and then let go and it's so interesting it's it, almost like there is a knowing isn't there um like a knowing in this 
something that is bigger than us in their consciousness, maybe perhaps feeling still feeling. And I mean, we know that people, the last thing that goes is their hearing. I think we say about people who are dying and, and maybe, you know, they have many more um, and wider ranging experiences of their surroundings than we think. And, and I, I really do believe that they experience um, us being there in a much more intimate way than we think. Would you agree with that from oh, your yeah. experience? Yeah, it, it's, it is really interesting, isn't it? And it's so hard to set it up to test it. Um, mm, yeah. But certainly, so there is some recent science. So let's talk about science a bit first, but I want to come back to what you're saying about that sense that we get when we're in the room. Um, some people in the University of British Columbia in Canada um, wanted to test this hypothesis about hearing being the last thing to go because we think it because we observe at the bedsides of unconscious people behavior changes when the right voices familiar voices soothing voices are in the room um, and we know from people who've had severe head injuries who've gone on to recover so they've been unconscious not because they are sedated with medications but because their brain injury has been severe and they recover and can tell you who visited them so we we know that there are some people who retain hearing during unconsciousness but we don't know how to tell who they are or whether that's everybody mm. so these people in british columbia got some volunteers who were patients approaching the ends of their lives and these people agreed to wear little electrodes on their scalps connected to an eeg monitor for the last part of their lives. So as they became unconscious and as they gradually went more deeply and deeply unconscious until they died, their brain waves were being recorded. And there was a little tape recorder in the machine that also was monitoring the noises in the room, door slamming, voices, music being played, whatever. And what the scientists have been able to see on these recordings is extraordinary. They can see that as people become more deeply unconscious, their brain rhythms and their EEG go to those kind of slow um, electronic patterns that we're familiar with in deep sleep and unconsciousness. Mm. But when there are noises, the brain waves change and the brain becomes wow. alerted. Now, wow. what we don't know is whether it's simply that a noise makes somebody be a little bit more awake or whether the person hears a noise and says, oh, that's my Auntie Ginny and that's the door slamming and there's the dog mm, now. Yes. So, so we don't know what they're interpreting, but we certainly know that there is perception of sound, that hearing is still happening in deep unconsciousness, very close to dying. And I, I'm really glad to hear that. That mm. really affirms I think the thing that you're talking about Mel which is when we're at the bedsides of dying people they may be deeply unconscious but there still seems to be a connection doesn't there between mm -hmm. them and the people who are around them and you see people restless when the right person isn't in the room or you see people being restless when the wrong person is in the room mm -hmm. um, you see people settling when their dog comes and lies on their tummy or their cat curls up on the pillow. I've seen people in deep unconsciousness whose breathing has synchronized to the sound of music in the room and then wow. become a little wow. bit chaotic again when the music track 
ended. So there's certainly something going on there that's beyond what we currently know. Probably like something like energy, because, you know, I sometimes even if I'm not in a deep state of unconsciousness, you can feel some people, the energy coming from them or the vibe. So I guess if you found yourself in a state of unconsciousness, you would cultivate more those other sense of feeling and you know when they are even if sometimes you you feel someone is looking at you even you know when you're like looking in the street and you see someone looking at you so if you and I think some people who came back from that those deep states were talking about this um, awareness of what was happening around them did that ever happen to you so I have I haven't had people talk about that specifically. I've had people talk about having had near death experiences in their past mm. and how that has been comforting to them as they're approaching their dying. Um, because I, one one man described to me how as as a as a young man he had been very, very sick and had had this experience of being out in the countryside walking across fields walking up a hill towards a gate and he could see the stile by the gate and on the other side of the gate was his twin sister who had died when they were very young Mm. and his he knew she was his twin sister although she was the age that he was now not the little girl he remembered And he was overjoyed to see her and he described kind of rushing up this field to get to the stile. And he put his foot on the stile and she said, no, no, not now, not yet. Wow. And he was bereft for the lost opportunity of being reunited with his twin. And he said for a long time after he recovered from that episode of being so sick that he was on the brink of dying, he mourned having survived. He mourned the loss of his death. Mm. But that throughout the rest of his life, it had given him great comfort and courage at the bedsides of his parents when they were dying, that that daughter, his twin sister, would be waiting for them. Um, And that he was quite excited as he was in the hospice where I was looking after him. I was quite a junior doctor at the time. He was quite excited because he knew what was going to happen. He could picture the landscape. He could picture the walk. And he was so excited that he was going to see her again. And when you read the testimonies of people who've had these near-death experiences, they are surprisingly similar, aren't they? And many, many people describe that sense of bewildered loss that they haven't been allowed to complete their dying Mm. at that time very very interesting i wish that there were more ways to communicate those stories to the broad public because as you were saying like there are so many fears around death in our society and if we were talking more about things like that maybe there would be less fears Yeah, that's what I wanted to say as well. I think, um, you know, and and with your first book you wrote, With the End in Mind, I feel you've really opened this opportunity up to people a lot more to discuss 
death and dying, because I mean, the stories you describe in the book, and I, I said this to Elodie the other day, um, I've read this book so many times, and I think it has actually made me so much more, I feel so much more able to be a doula now, if that makes sense, because I feel I've learned so much from your stories and from the way you engaged with your patients um, throughout the book. And I'm aware that they are not always, you know, it's not always one person. I think you say in the foreword that sometimes it's not one person, but you might have three, um, you know, patients merged mm -hmm. into one patient in the book um, or whatever. But it just seems to me like you have, really opened the the door for people to read these stories and to say this is actually not as frightening as I thought it would be mm. because we get people together at the bedside of people who are dying and we get people's wishes heard and fulfilled and I tell you and this this kind of moves on then to another question I would have, or maybe you could elaborate on that. I remember one particular story in the book that um, illustrates this, this need for open communication to me. And that is the story where you visit this elderly couple um, and she has cancer and she knows it and she has known it for quite some time. And the husband, I think, Joe, you called him in the book. He knew it as well. But he, and he was the one who opened the door to you or for you. And he kind of shushed you, you know, saying, oh, don't talk to her. You know, don't let her know that you've come because of this, you know. And then you go upstairs and you're on your own with her. And she almost says the same thing to you. You yeah. know, I have cancer, but please don't tell my husband. And clearly, in that story, and as you tell it in the book, you were able to give both of them the opportunity to admit that to each other, that they had both known and that they were both, that they had just been so afraid of not being able to protect yeah. each other. So do you find that this is, do you, would you like to say something about this particular story? Or well, the, like this this couple, I can I can I can picture the bedroom now, even as as we're talking about it. But I chose their story because it epitomised a story that uh, that I've moved through in so many families: mm. parents protecting children who are dying, children protecting parents who are dying, spouses, friends. And the secret is held entirely out of love. It's never out of the desire to deceive for my benefit. It's always to deceive for your benefit. Mm. And somehow, um, you know, sometimes we actually get referrals and, and the GP or the hospital team will say, I'm really stuck with this family because they are all pretending and you can't even open the conversation with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so when people greet me as Joe did 
and as many people have done at their front door, they come out to the car to talk to you, they see you parking and they shoot out and you know, you know exactly what's going to happen. Or, you know, you're, you're walking down the hospital ward and somebody says, oh, are, are you the palliative care team? Can I just have a word with you before you go and see my mum? You know exactly what's going to happen next. You can't tell her, you mustn't tell him. He's mm. so fragile already. The shock would be too distressing. He'll die sooner if he knows. Mm. All of this terror and concern and love and need to protect. And so what I always do is start with that. That You know, I can just, I can feel, because you can, I can feel how much you love this person. I can feel how hard you are working to protect them. And you've been doing a great job. Mm. and so far everybody's been telling them they're doing the wrong thing mm. yeah okay I have to go and talk to your mum husband child and I'm going to say to you now I am if they ask me a direct question I cannot lie mm. I'm not going to lie but what would be really lovely would be to have you with me there mm. being their protector being their person who supports them so you can hear exactly how the conversation goes and so if things come up that haven't come up before you're part of it and if they mm. don't that's fine and I'm not going to push it I'm not going to force it but I know and I'm sure that you know Mel that you can get to a bedside and start to talk to somebody and within a few sentences, be aware that they are looking for a way to have a conversation that's not been allowed to take place. Mm. And that we can ask questions that allow their question to bubble to the surface in a gradual, safe way. So Nellie, in the story that Mel is remembering from the book, sent Joe downstairs to make tea, which was her way of getting him out of the room. Um, and then uh, told me that she didn't quite know how to tell him how bad things were. And he came back up before she'd finished. So I knew she knew, but I didn't know quite what she knew. Um, so he's pouring out the tea. And then she said, well, where are the biscuits? <laughs> but the doctor in the house go and get the biscuit sent him downstairs again so she got a second bite at this conversation oh, yes. um and you know there are different ways that people find of creating the space mm. um and when the person that you know they're mutually protecting is not there to be able to say i'm so worried about how she's going to be after i've gone mm. um I, I'm not sure that they've realised how bad things are. Something like that. And now we can start that conversation. And by the time the person gets back, the conversation has begun. And I can say, I'm really glad you're back because your mum, your husband, your son has started to talk to me about this. Would you like to tell your mum what we're talking about? Would you like to explain to your husband mm. what we're talking about? So, so it's their conversation. And very often, as it was with Nellie and Joe, once Nellie started to tell Joe what we were talking about, I just left them to it. You know, they, they, they don't need a referee. They don't need a, a facilitator. Once, the, once that ice is broken, we just need to get out of the way and let people who love each other get on with loving and talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
I really um I really love that story and how you you did actually what we are told to do as doulas as well is like hold space and just be here and be bear witness to how the situation mm. is but often I think having someone like you by their side is really helpful for people to be able to articulate their fears and it's so helpful really to have someone like that um, we all wish we had someone like that sometimes when we were facing uh, grief and loss and um, it, it's it's not it's unnecessary to have regrets now but I think a lot of people turn back I have I know someone and I talked about it before who had a relative who died in a living room and I thought when she told me that I thought it was the greatest opportunity for her to um, learn and to be there for that person but for her it was the worst uh, souvenir of a, uh, the worst memory of her life because it was terribly terribly traumatizing because she was alone um, mm. and she felt completely scared to even get close to the body of her uncle when she, he was alive yeah yeah it's really distressing it's, it's an interesting thing isn't it that 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 thing about being able to hold space yes because i'm not quite sure what it is that we do to do that. In fact, I'm not quite sure that it is something that we do. Mm. I think it's something that we are. I think that mm. um, in the book, quite early on, I told the story of the first time I heard the process of dying being yes. described to another person. Yes. And even as quite an experienced junior doctor, because I'd been on a, on a cancer training trajectory, I'd seen a lot of people die. But it wasn't until I heard the process being described that I realized that it is a process mm. and that we can describe it and that we can anticipate it and that we can be companions to it. Mm. And that was a game changer for me because it made me realize, first of all, that that is a gift that we can give people. And as doulas, it's a gift that you give to people to offer, to describe what to expect, what their families will see. You can plan so much better for the very end of your life. You can imagine which room in your house that can take place in, mm. um, who might be around you, what support you might need. If you know, if you can anticipate what the process is going to be. So it's part of the doula role to help people into a clear understanding of what the process will be, if that's what they want. Mm. And my experience is that offering to describe it to people and saying, you know, if you don't want to hear anymore, if at any point it gets too much, you just say, and I'll stop. Mm. They, they never stop you because it's never what they're expecting. It's so much <laughs> calmer and more anticipatable than they've been imagining mm. and it never escalates to some, listening to something dreadful that you don't want to hear the next bit of yeah. so, so we're able to describe it to people we're able to ask people to describe it back to us to check that they've understood it we're able to sit and listen as they describe maybe with our support to their families what the process is and the more times we hear them describe it the more we're sure that they've really 
embedded it. They've understood it. Mm. They can contemplate it without having a meltdown. Hmm. So, so, so what I think is the holding space thing is about having inside you as a doula or inside me as a palliative care doctor a knowledge or an understanding or a confidence that wherever this conversation might go, I will have a comfortable way of being beside that conversation, of contributing into that conversation. Mm. If they want to talk about dying, if they want to talk about what it will be like for their beloved people, if they want to talk about um, the care of, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what, what, what will happen to me after I've died? Where, where does my body go? What happens mm. next? Um, so to be able to talk about the choices that you've got and what funeral directors might do or where we, where we look after people after they've died in a, a hospice or where we take people after they've died in the hospital. I think part of the holding space is just that quiet inner knowledge that there's nothing that's off limits here for this conversation. Mm. And so I will never feel I've been backed into a corner and therefore I don't come in defensive, whereas the rest of the family are all so anxious that we might talk about dying or we might have to talk about that row that my mum had with a sister who wants to visit before she died, or, you know, whatever it is, that there's a little frisson of anxiety and defensiveness that makes the space uncomfortable, that closes the space down. Mm. And what we're doing is just being us, drinking yes. tea, having conversations. And I suppose... Also giving, you know, giving people space also to me. I mean, I was thinking a lot about this when I was reading the book. Um, when you tell the story about the lady who was very close to death and had so much, was so agitated mm -hmm. and you were called to the house and you explained to the family just in a few words. I think there were kids there and a granny and mm. uh, somebody else. And you explained, well, you know, if, if she didn't have this medication against her nausea, which is actually what makes her so agitated, she would not have the energy to dance around the kitchen table here and, you know, do this that, and the other. So that was maybe exactly that the explanation that they needed in order to be able to say, okay, and if she lies down now and wants to go to sleep, which is what she eventually did, as far mm -hmm. as I remember, that is absolutely fine. Because we have understood now, we have been reassured that this part of, you know, being so agitated and so awake for over 24 hours is as much part of her life right now and her process as it is that she now wants to lie down and fall asleep and have her kids cuddled up to her. And maybe holding space is also that, you know, from this inner knowing or from this inner wisdom, as I would call it, we get this we just have the knowledge what is right to say to what person without thinking about it much. You know, we're not going yeah. in with this agenda saying, oh, to this and that person, I have to do this and that now and say whatever. It just comes out of us, I think, because, you know, sometimes I, I, I think it's almost like we, we all know deep down. We all know what mm -hmm. to do 
and how to how to be would you say that well, i think i think that the body knows doesn't it mm. when when a woman goes into her first labor she's never been in labor before she takes up a position usually not a stirrups position <laughs> she takes up a position yeah. that will support her body in the posture that it needs to be safely to push a baby out mm. She doesn't know how. She doesn't know why she knows. She just knows. And yes. I think dying people are having that same experience, that our bodies know how to do this. And these are processes that we can we can just trust and go with. I mean, I think the other part of being able to be a, a good companion at a deathbed for us as as people who are doing this in a kind of a professional capacity is knowing that it's okay if we don't know mm. And, mm. and there are a lot of people who are trying to get things no i'm saying that wrong there are a lot of people who are trying to do the right thing. yes and sometimes there isn't a right thing and you just have to be here now with what is actually happening Mm. and find a way to just get through this bit so I was so so inexperienced when I went out to visit that lady in her flat but because I'd come from um, a cancer unit where I saw this kind of dancing restless couldn't settledness quite a lot in patients who were having antiemetics with their chemotherapy because that was before we had the modern anti-sickness treatments you know I knew straight away what was going on and I knew that we couldn't miss the next tablet or she'd just feel wretched and nauseated and so the choices were kind of dancing around the kitchen and unable to sleep and agitated or sitting down nauseated feeling absolutely terrible mm. um, and although her mother was exhausted because the woman hadn't slept all night she was in quite a good place. She had a tape on. She was dancing to the music. Mm. She was okay. And we used her energy. Um, we sent her off with some of the mm. some of the neighbours and she went off to the shops and had her mm. nails done. Now, if you've seen somebody with achithysia, they cannot keep still. So I do not know how that <laughs> nail technician did, did that job. Um, but, you know, they used that energy. And in the meanwhile, I'd gone back to the hospice to get a very specific antidote that would act in the brain to reduce the agitation, but mm. would take away the, the nausea treatment that she, the benefit she was getting from it. And of course, once we took the agitation away, what we expected happened, she just settled and settled into her dying. And everybody was kind of ready to deal with that at that point you know and also well, I suppose I, partly because she had had such a good last day of her life would you she say she had such a brilliant day but you know look you know that thing about how when you go through life forwards you're making choices all the time and it's kind of random and you try this and you do that and then when you look backwards it all looks really clear like a clear path. Mm. When I think back about that day now, I arrived in that flat, 
that woman clearly had this condition called akathisia. She was restless. She was physically exhausted because she hadn't been able to sleep and because she was still dancing and moving around. Yeah. She was going to progressively get more and more agitated unless they could keep her brain stimulated but she was going to run out of energy for moving which is why we we borrowed the lady downstairs as a wheelchair and they took her off to the shops so that the energy was still being used even though she was sitting and wriggling <laughs> in an armchair mm. um but i didn't really have a plan i didn't know yes. what we were going to do i knew there was a drug i could use to reverse the the level of agitation I didn't realize that she would be move so quickly from agitated to not agitated to nearly dead to dead. But luckily mm. by then I had my boss with me and he narrated the dying to them. He asked them, oh, it was absolutely astonishing. Can you see how she's changing? Mm, Can yeah. you see how much more peaceful she looks? Mm. What do you think about her breathing? Uh, can you see she isn't fidgeting anymore? What he did was draw their attention over and over again to how comfortable she was, to how peaceful she was, um, to how she was um, fiddling with one of the daughter's hair. She had a mm. had a head against her mum's shoulder and her mum brought her arm up and she was mm. stroking her hair. And just to help them to form the story of what was happening in a way where they could look back and say, mum had this great day and then she was really, really tired. And then she lay down on a mattress on the living room floor, but that was okay. And she cuddled us and she was contented and Nana was there and we were together and it went dark and the room was only lit by the street light outside and her breathing got slower and she was really comfortable. And then her breathing stopped. And those girls in their teens, bereft of their mother, who was their single parent, luckily with this very capable nana there to look after them afterwards, they have a narrative now. They have a story to take into their bereavement mm. that they wouldn't have got if my boss hadn't come because yes. I wouldn't have realised to do that. So that was, again, another fantastic gift mm. that he gave to me, that he modelled... He modeled doulering, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. He, well, he was a wonderful companion there. It's so, um, what I think of is the word consciousness. And they were able, thanks to his doulering, to witness their mom passing in consciousness. And so it took away somehow, when I read it, it took away the, this agitation yeah. And probably this is what would have happened to those teenage girls, you know, like just what is happening, the question, what what is happening? And he yeah. was there to give them the beautiful gift of consciousness and just bearing witness. Mm. Yeah. Well, I also think there is really nothing to control. You know, I, I often think it's the difference between wanting to control things and actually surrendering to the moment and knowing that, the body of the dying person knows what it's doing and we know how to respond from that from our you know innermost like from our bodies and from our deep selves and so you know all this controlling and we have to do this and we have to do that is 
I suppose something that we learn when we go through life, you know, everything has to be controlled and to be checked and double checked. And but maybe in death and dying, that doesn't really that actually gets more in the way. Yeah, but this is when yeah. you you accept the idea of death in itself, because most of the time, and we talked about that in a previous episode, is that death is seen as a failure. Like if the person has died, it means that we missed something, that we we failed, even if the person is really old. And um, I am really interested, Catherine, because as a doctor, I don't know if you were always inclined to work in palliative care, but I I I. I I think it's fascinating when a doctor chooses that path because being a doctor somehow always means saving lives. I mean, this is how mm. people see it. Um, and you are here to say, okay, life is over now, but we are going to go to the other side in the best way possible. Yeah. So when I qualified, there, there wasn't a medical discipline of palliative medicine or a okay. nursing discipline of palliative care um, and I really was interested in cancer care and so the, the the jobs that I chose were in hospitals where I was working with um, well I had to get you have to get postgraduate exams as well in, in medicine but I worked in the, the regional uh, hematology center so in those days most of the adult leukemias were incurable you know it was very very different early 1980s from mm. now and um then worked in the regional cancer center for a year and during that what i discovered was that finding the cure for cancer which is of course why people go into cancer medicine mm. turned out not to be terribly thrilling it <laughs> turned out mainly to be about taking a lot of blood from people and drawing a lot of graphs <laughs> and at the same time as that in the same wards there were lots of patients and a higher proportion then than there would be now who were not in any hope of cure at all mm. and so for them every day counted every day spent in hospital was a day not spent amongst their family and friends mm. and trying to get people comfortable enough to make the movements of getting out of bed and putting their clothes on and getting washed, get, trying to get people mobile enough that they could do those things independently. Each piece of progress towards that seemed to me to be much more, um, I'm not sure if exciting is the word, but rewarding mm. than um, grinding through the clinical trials that were part of the cancer research program. Mm. And I was very lucky, you know, so I had a foot in each camp. I'm, I'm doing with this kind of cutting edge uh, cancer treatment university service, but also looking after these people who are, who are not going to be cured and trying to sort out how to stop that pain in their rib, how to sort out their hiccups, mm. um, how to get them enough um, relief from their nausea that if they get home they'll be able to cook for their family without that being an overwhelming task you know those sorts wow. of just kind mm. of day-to-day -day things so round about the time that I was realizing that that was more interesting than the research to me mm -hmm. um, a hospice got built in my city so I wrote to them and said well um, I've been qualifying now for 
uh, nearly four years. I've worked in the big hospitals around the city. I know most of the doctors who you might need to ask for advice about patients who are coming through this hospice. Um, have you got a job? Mm-hmm. Um, and they invited me along and I was invited for an interview and they said, oh, OK, we will make a training post in our hospice. Um and yeah, you can come and train in, and it was just called hospice care, you know. Mm. And then later that year, or maybe the next year, the Association for Palliative Medicine for Britain and Ireland was was formed, and the specialty became called palliative medicine. So I was one of the very, very first trainees. But at the time, it wasn't a thing; it wasn't a career plan. Mm. I had to knit my own training, which was itself incredibly good fun. Um, <laughs> But to me, what I really loved was that combination of the the detective work of the medicine. Why has this person got nausea? What's the mechanism? Mm. Because if we can work out the mechanism, we can find a very specific Mm. drug that will work for them. Um, What is it about this person's pain that settles when they sit down but hurts when they lie down? That's mm-hmm. what's going on here. And what can we do to that thigh bone that will allow that person to lie down comfortably and not lose sleep and so have the energy to do what they need to do tomorrow? So it was all about the medical detective work alongside two other things that mattered to me very much. The psychological, emotional dimension of how people are dealing with this mm. challenge in their lives. Yes. Um, and the place of a person within their family and how you preserve their role as much as you can and their relationships so that every day is a day that's valuable to them, even if they're gradually giving up some of the things that were valuable. You know, the person you can get home to do the cooking eventually is training somebody else to do the cooking, eventually Mm. is giving advice from the bedroom. But you can still help them to feel like the captain of their household ship even if they're, you know, they're not in the um, the engine room anymore. They're just mm. giving giving directions from the bridge instead. Mm. So yeah. that kind of physical, emotional, social trio altogether just absolutely fascinated me. And yes. then there's an overarching thing above and beyond that, isn't there, which all doulas talk about, which is the kind of existential, spiritual arc over somebody and over the people who are important to them um, that is about meaning and about purpose and being able to enable people to retain that sense of meaning and purpose or sometimes for the very first time in their lives discern their meaning and purpose at the very edge of their lives Mm. it can be very moving can't it to see people suddenly go oh okay this is this is what it's all been about wow Mm. it's so beautiful because you kind of taking the pain away with this detective work you describe were allowing them to find the space to reflect on that life and their experiences and kind of because I always think and I might sound a little bit weird saying that that dying from a long illness is a chance in the sense that it helps you to um, put your life in order, if I may say, because when you mm. know you are dying, when you know when, like, basically it's going to happen soon, even if we are all dying in a way, 
when you have an illness, it's a way of being able to say, okay, so now um, if you're if you're able to face it, this is the moment I have to uh, to say sorry or to say I love you or just um, write a letter. But if you're in pain or if nobody is really taking care of you because they think, well, you're done anyway, you're gonna die, so there mm. is no need to take care of you anymore. Like, uh, so this is what also you the gift you gave them is was to find this that peace to be able to because it's such like it's like a birth in the other way so it's mm. uh, it's a preparation in a way yeah i think i think that's right being midwives yes yeah mm. but but one of the things about it elodie one, one of the things that is really really important to help families particularly to understand is sometimes a person who's been so preoccupied by their pain or their nausea or their breathlessness, or their itch, or their bowels. And, and we've all met people, haven't we? Well, that's not all they can talk about is, is that. When you find a way to relieve that symptom, sometimes then you get, what you give them is the space to emote. And suddenly they've got the space to think, oh, time is short, things are not done. Mm. And taking away physical pain sometimes actually gives people space for processing their emotional and spiritual pain, Mm. which is actually a far harder pain to deal with. So it's helpful sometimes to, to warn people that that can happen or, or to just be prepared that at the follow-up visit, the person isn't full of gratitude and smiles because you've taken their pain away. Mm. They are now full of uh, despair and rage because they've got the space to feel despair and rage mm. and despair and rage are exactly the right things to be feeling right now. Mm. But it feels unjust that I've had that pain for so long and now the pain is gone. I, I, I feel so terrible, mm. but actually that's because they're supposed to feel terrible yeah what do you need Mm. to do now what does this distress require (laughs) in order for you to get to a place of peace and very often that's a step that they know what it is but it's difficult to take Mm. you know i i have to uh, make peace with a with a trauma from long ago Mm. i have to forgive a great wrong or i have to accept that a great wrong was unforgivable and I I didn't deserve the thing that happened to me, but I'm not a bad person because it happened to me, whatever it is. Mm. So we do sometimes find that people are in a place of of enormous emotional pain once they've got the space for it because their physical pain has been removed. It's important not to get blindsided by that. Mm. Interesting. Mm. That's an interesting thing, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Mm. Wow. So what are you actually doing right now, Catherine? I mean, we know that you, um, we say this in our introduction, that you took early retirement. Um, We know that you wrote the book with the end in mind, which we would really recommend our listeners to read. Absolutely. Um, So what have you been doing over the last while? Well, the book itself... um, has opened a lot of doors to a lot of different discussions. So before COVID, I was doing a lot of traveling and teaching and speaking. So that's how I came to to meet you, Mel, when we were in Dublin together at the Irish mm-hmm. Hospice Foundation meeting, which yes. was fantastic. Um, I've, I've been 
they've been all over the place south america and uh, new wow. zealand it's been really really exciting really? and i didn't anticipate any of that at this stage of my life mm-hmm. um and then when covid happened two things happened that were overlapped with each other one was that the world suddenly was talking about dying and to start off with it was just data wasn't it, it was deaths in the newspapers and on the news but very quickly it became apparent to healthcare staff that they needed to be able to think about talk about dying be able to make really difficult phone calls to families who weren't able to be at the bedsides um, so I got involved in some work that was happening for NHS England um, mm. to make support materials for staff who were having to have those really, really tender conversations. Mm-hmm. I went back to work in my local NHS organisation for the first COVID surge, um, just doing staff support and communication skills training. I wasn't at the bedsides mm-hmm. um, and I felt I felt a bit ambivalent about that. You know, it it was sad not to be Mm. there working with people who were really sick. But at the same same time, I guess there's that sense of if I can help um, 300 staff in this organisation feel more confident about having those conversations well, and each of them is going to look after dozens of patients mm. at the end of their lives then actually it's that the time is better spent isn't it but mm. and it does yeah. come back to the patients eventually yeah, yes. yeah yeah so 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 I did that but at the same time by then I'd started and interrupted to go back to work writing this uh, second book about communication about conversations mm. um and so I really had to get a, a wiggle on over autumn and winter because I had a deadline to meet and I'd done almost no writing by by the end of the summer because I've been at work and been doing lots and lots of online teaching for NHS organisations, uh, voluntary organisations, patient groups, uh, talking about, talking about dying. Mm. Um, so there's a little bit of me that can see that COVID has been not only dreadful and it has been dreadful but it also has been useful in a really terrible way Mm, in making our mortality a bit more evident to us and sparking off some conversations around that Mm. so I feel like I've spent a year on zoom or microsoft teams (laughs) just in um in in this tiny little bedroom here um talking about dying talking about how to talk about dying um it's been very strange and very sad and very rewarding all at the same time and Mm. i'm now in a race to get the last edits of this book sent back to my editor um, (laughs) so that the book can be published later on this year well i'm sure it can be a amazing to uh, read about that because listening is such a great part of of life itself actually just to be more to have more empathy um listening and be curious about the other yeah person in front of and, you and that that's the key to every successful conversation isn't it so so that's what the book is all about 
And I think a, a lot of the time when people um, get in contact with me about, you know, I, I, I need to get my family to talk about this. Mm. Um, the sense I get is that what they feel they need to do is give everybody a really good talking to. Mm. And yet, mm. actually, what we what we really need to do is persuade people to give everybody else a really good listening to. Yes. So the <laughs> book is the it. book is called Listen for exactly that reason. Wonderful. That's wonderful. I'm just curious about something, Catherine. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, is about um, I've been watching a conference where you talked at. Um, It's the Hospice UK conference in 2018. I was watching it with my daughter and she was really fascinated because you were showing. Uh, but there were some bits I was I didn't know you were talking about that. But uh, the, the, the tales, how the tales yeah. were talking about death and then modern uh, media. Um, how in the newspaper they talk about death and how it's all very frightening and how in the movies it's pictured now. And I was wondering how... How do you think, like, because you were saying that with COVID, uh, we are getting there in the sense of embracing our mortality. And um, if you thought it was uh, East Enders kind of uh, death talk <laughs> these days, or if we are more into realistic as a doctor. I think it's interesting because a lot of people have not been able to be at the deathbeds of people dying of COVID. Mm. Um, and COVID... There have been two sorts of deaths from COVID, really. Mm -hmm. The majority have been the deaths that we're familiar with, although on a very rapid trajectory. So the sort of dying that my grandmother would have been familiar with in the 1920s and 1930s when people got very serious infective illnesses. So they'd been well, they got a terrible infection, there were no antibiotics, they became so sick that they could die and then they either died or they didn't mm. and it was very mm. very quick and if they were lucky enough to have made enough antibodies to recover they then would be this long slow recuperation which is something we're seeing with a lot of people with covid but otherwise people went from well to sick enough to die to dead mm. very quickly and we're not used to that We are used to people being well and then a bit more sick and we do fancy medicine and we try to stop them getting too sick mm. enough to die. Mm. Um, but at the very end of life for, for people with COVID, that sinking into unconsciousness, changes in breathing, gradual pauses, dying has been the norm, except that their blood oxygen levels have been so low that the reflex breathing has been faster all the way through because it's being the reflex is being driven by low oxygen levels. Mm. But there's been another group of people, and these were the minority, who tolerated those low oxygen levels whilst being awake. And we are not used to being able to converse with people mm. who are actually on the brink of death over the next minutes mm. or hours. That's unusual. Oh, I, I didn't know that. So, so there's this subgroup of people tolerating very low oxygen levels that would make most of us unconscious. And in COVID, for reasons that we haven't understood, they still retain consciousness. They might be a little bit muddled. Mm. Um, and so families who've been at the bedsides might not have seen that typical thing that we describe, but something that was much more like somebody who was awake until maybe only the last hour or so. Of, of their lives but families haven't seen it 
and so they're interested in what it's been like and I think we do need to be able to describe what that trajectory is and one of the things that I thought was really lovely was intensive care units have developed a very good habit of keeping diaries for their patients Mm. so that when the person eventually gets better which is usually what happens on an intensive care unit when they leave the intensive care unit they'll have all sorts of fragmentary memories that they can't quite put together which can be quite traumatizing and they can look through the diary that the nurses have kept for them and put their fragments into the context of the things that happened to them during admission and it's really helpful for them then to be able to understand the narrative of what happened to them because we do understand our lives through stories and so the intensive care units have shared those diaries with wards who've been looking after covid patients and then if the person has survived they've got their diary of that time when their oxygen levels were too low for them to make complete sense of the sequence of events but the families have access to the narrative of what happened to the person who died. And when you think about what we talk about at funerals, we talk about the last time the person was awake, the last time they had a cup of tea or coffee, mm. last thing they ate, the last thing they said, the last time we saw them smile. <laughs> Those are really important things. We tell the same things in reverse about our children. Mm. And the first time they smile and the first solid food that they have, you know, the parallels between Mm. birth and and tiny totem and dying Mm -hmm. and death are are very, very real. And we make sense by having the stories and the diaries help people to have stories. So I think the thing we've lost from COVID and the thing we need to work really hard to restore is giving families enough information that they can Mm. construct a real narrative in their minds of what happened between the last time they saw that person leaving home in the back of an ambulance Mm. and collecting their belongings in a hospital after they've Mm. died. Mm. What actually Mm. happened during those times is so important for us for healthy grieving. Mm. Can I ask you one more question? Um, Because I'm really, I was really thinking about this a lot before we came on to the podcast today, because I told my mom and dad yesterday, well, they know about this podcast that Elodie and I are doing and they find this a bit strange, but then they have always found me a bit weird that, you know, because <laughs> I've been always interested and fascinated by death and dying. And I was working in a hospice when I was only 20. And back then, you know, they said to me, are you mad? You know, why would you do that? You're only 20. Like your death is so far away. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you both know that. So I don't have to go into it more. But um, so yesterday I told them about and I have told them about your book before. And um, my parents are German. Unfortunately, it's not available in German. I hope it will be translated into a lot of other languages sometime. Um, but so I told him about your book and about you and, um, my mom was saying, oh, that's fantastic that you have her on the podcast. And, you know, I was really in awe of that, you know, best-selling author on the podcast. And then she said to me, you know, um, do you think that, because I, I described to her the process of dying and the way you describe it. And she said, yeah, but there are also awful deaths, aren't there? And she kind of made it out to, like she said, I would actually say that there are more awful deaths. 
like good deaths, you know, and aren't the deaths really just distressing? And, you know, I tried to say to her, well, I think often it's distressing for the loved ones, much more so than for the dying person, a bit what you said Mm. at the beginning of the podcast. And, but what would interest me is have patients or families of patients ever said something similar to you, you know, kind of saying, no, I, I don't believe you like this, this can't be a good death because it looks like this and it looks like that. And, you know, I, I don't get a good feeling that's, this is very distressing or mm. is it mostly your experience that as soon as you open up the space for the conversation that people can actually access this, um, yeah. the piece that is there. Yeah. They- so I think that's a really, really important question. Um, so the first thing to say is that, of course, because I work in palliative care, although for the last 10 years of my career, I was almost entirely based in a big, busy teaching hospital trust. So not in a hospice, ordinary dying in a hospital, but the palliative care team knew those patients. And so their symptom management was probably very well managed. Mm-hmm. And occasionally we would be called to a crisis on a ward and you would realize that you were very, very close to the end of somebody's life and maybe their symptoms were pretty awful. And we would have to work very quickly to get their symptoms sorted out. And we usually could. Mm. Yes. But we mustn't pretend, and, and I know you don't and I don't either, that all dying is peaceful and comfortable. I think that it's not difficult to get comfortable dying to happen physical Mm. symptoms are usually not terribly terribly difficult to manage particularly if you've been managing the symptoms over a period of time so if you go back to the midwifery analogy if you've got to know your midwife early on during the pregnancy then by the time you're coming towards delivery we know which way round the baby is and we know Mm. where the placenta is and Mm. we know whether the mum's got the right size pelvis for a vaginal delivery, for example. So the success of the birthing is partly reliant on the good antenatal care that happened before that. And good, comfortable dying very often is a product of having got the symptoms well managed earlier on in the illness and then maintained the symptom management as the persons become weaker and weaker towards the very end of their life. But as I talked about before, sometimes when you take the physical symptoms away, what Mm. then appears is the space for the emotional distress and the existential distress. And we don't have treatments for that. That is about doing the emotional work, doing the psychological work. And that's why it's important for us as human beings to be doing that work early on in our lives Mm. and not postponing it. So there are some people who are physically comfortable on their deathbed and yet afraid. There are some people who are physically comfortable on their deathbed and yet distressed and bereft for the farewells that they're saying. Mm. And that's not comfortable dying, even though it's not dying in agony. It's not comfortable because it's emotionally distressing. Mm. In terms of physically distressing dying, I keep trying to do the sums of how many people I've worked with towards the end of their lives. 
Um, and it's quite hard when you're the doctor because the caseload is everybody else's caseload that you're the doctor responsible to all of those nurses and the social workers and you know everybody else but it's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people so if we said it's you know kind of maybe 12,000 people I I can think of about a dozen occasions where I've just thought oh this is not good I would hate this to be happening to somebody that I love or to me Mm. and they you know, were occasions and that's important to say but it's it's it means that it's about one in a thousand mm. so it's really really unusual but but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen but i think that is so important for people to hear you know one in a thousand approximately yeah. has yeah. a physically uncomfortable distressing yeah. death Mm. and, Just and to reiterate yeah that. It, yeah and it's so important that people understand that but then the other thing is if the family doesn't understand what is happening to their dying person then they will hear the breathing noises and they will think well anytime you hear a person making a noise like that they're struggling for breath or they're sighing or they're groaning. So what is the pain that my person has got here that nobody's responding to? What is the breathless struggle that's going on here that nobody's doing anything about? Mm. Whereas if we're beside them saying, actually, again, like the midwife who says, during labor, you're going to feel this pressure down in your bottom. Mm. Um, you're going to feel that you want to push and I'm going to ask you not to, and we're going to practice now the panting and diversion that you're going to do so that you don't push until everything's ready down there for the baby to come out safely. And then during labor, the midwife is saying, this is that feeling I told you to expect. Mm. This is what it actually feels like. Don't push pant mm. or, okay, you can push now. Can you remember how to do the breathing where you're bearing down and you're pressing into your bottom? Do that now. Mm. So there are no surprises on the birth bed because we've had all of the conversations during antenatal care. So if we've discussed what the, the breathing will sound like during our pre-death care, we're now able to say to the family, this is that breathing we talked about. And what it tells me is this person that you love is deeply unconscious. Mm. That sound that sounds like a groan is somebody breathing out over their vocal cords and it makes a groaning noise, but it doesn't mean that they're trying to talk or that they're trying to tell us they've got a pain. But let's just have a check. Let's look at them together. Are they frowning? Are they grimacing? Are they curling up their legs? Do they look like a person who's distressed or mm. are we just hearing a funny noise on each outbreath? Mm. And yeah, that is what's happening. We're just feeling, hearing a funny nose on each outbreath. And mm. I can remember sitting beside my grandmother in hospital, hearing her making that noise. I was a consultant in palliative medicine by then. Mm. And I've got two halves of my brain and one half of my brain is looking at her and thinking, you're unconscious this is reflex breathing. I hope my mum and my auntie get back from the cafe with the cups of tea in time. I would hate you to die while they're not here. And I know that you might because they're not here. Oh my God, please hang on. And the other half of me is the granddaughter who's looking at her and thinking, are you, are you saying something? Do you, do you need something? I, what, what are you saying to me? Is, is that a word? And then, you know, having to give myself a talking to and say, you know what this is. You have seen this literally thousands of times, but now this is your nana and it feels different. 
So mm. I understand when fa- families look at us and we say, do you know what? This is just reflex breathing. And they, they say, but you don't know him like I know him. And that's absolutely true. Mm. But every person who's given birth to a baby has had a completely unique experience of that labor with that baby for that mum. And every midwife has looked at her and gone, yeah, it's not time to push yet or, mm-hmm. or whatever, because the midwife is seeing what the midwives always see. Mm-hmm. And at deathbeds, we're doing the same thing. Every family is having their unique experience and interpreting everything that's going on in the context of their relationship with that person. And we are looking at that holding them together in the love that they need to be held in but we are still observing a process that we've seen hundreds of times before that we can narrate and must narrate so that they understand the letters i've had about the book have been from traumatized people saying i just understood that my beloved person was unconscious when Mm. all that was going on and i've lived for years thinking that they suffered Mm. And I've read your book and I absolutely recognize the changes and the sequences that happened to my mum, my wife, my Mm. son. I had one letter from a mum whose son had bled out in Mm. the way of the of the one very unpleasant death that's in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I felt I needed to put an unpleasant death in in order not to be a kind of Pollyanna but I couldn't put several unpleasant deaths in because that would have been so wildly disproportionate. Even one out of 30. Yeah, I was just Way more to than say, one out of yeah. a thousand, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But we had to do, we had to show that it's not mm. always, always, always the same. But this mum wrote to me and said, I hadn't appreciated as I was mopping the blood from my son's mouth that he was already unconscious and that he wasn't suffering like I was at his bedside. Mm. And I'd worried about putting that story in, but for the sake of that one mum, it was Mm. absolutely worth it. Yes, absolutely. And it is her story, and it is her son's death. As unpleasant it may sound for a lot of people, this is how we died, and this has to be honoured as well. But I also think your book is very important, not only for families and, and the new book coming out, especially as well, is, is not only important for family members, but also for healthcare staff, because I do think there is unfortunately a lot of necessity for that work, you know, how to how to talk compassionately to a family or a relative and not just say something you know very bland or give only half meaningful explanations or only say the things that they could later on at home look up in google themselves you know being very unper- impersonal and you know kind of not not seeming to care and i do understand that when you work with many many people you know, throughout the day, throughout the week, you kind of, you know, you, you are not, some, sometimes I suppose people are not as, they can't be as close to every patient and their family as we would wish. But I do still think that there is some need for healthcare staff as well, especially for, for nurses in, and I can only talk about Ireland, because, you know, I, I'm only familiar with Irish nurses. Um, 
and German ones. But uh, yeah, I do, I do feel that they, um, you know, there is sometimes a lack of understanding that there might be more of an explanation needed. Yeah, that is one thing. But I think it's also and I think this is more importantly, um, this is more the case that they don't know how to explain and how to sit with their own pain when they are explaining something, because it would trigger some pain in them as well somewhere deep down you know yeah you you would hope that it would wouldn't you that to to be that present to somebody else's pain involves bringing yourself there and Mm. it hurts us to see people in distress and that's why we went into the caring professions in the first place yes um and i think it's really hard as we have so much more that we can do that costs so much more to do that to continue to provide those things means we have to cut back on staffing in order to be able to afford those things Mm. and staff don't have the bedside time that they Mm. would like to have and they do come to people exhausted in the ninth tenth eleventh hour of a 12-hour shift um so you know, we we need to think about how we're looking after staff, how we're supporting staff. Mm. Yes. You're right, that they don't know how to describe it. In fact, they don't know what it is. And one of the things that's been really lovely for me is the number of schools of um, nursing, paramedic science, medical schools, who've started to recommend this book mm. as their core texts, because we take students of health science out of a population of people that doesn't know what dying looks like and we train Mm -hmm. to stop people from dying and we don't teach them about beyond the point where we can no longer stop dying this is what happens this is the sequence of events this is how to describe it to families this is how to arrange the chairs you know Mm. in in a hospital there's a big chair beside the head of the bed that faces the same direction as the bed and when you're the spouse sitting beside your mm-hmm. beloved other person or you're the granddaughter sitting beside your grandparent, you don't feel that like you've got permission to pick the chair up and turn it around so you can mm-hmm. actually look at them. Just moving the furniture. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's really just, true. You know, just owning the space, giving people mm-hmm. permission to own the space. Oh. But staff don't think to do that staff don't think to well, narrate the dying to. they are not told to right no, are they? no. Oh. so oh. there's a lot of work to do but i think covid has started the change yeah that's yeah. good to know that's really really you know it gives it gives hope doesn't it i mean as terrible as this whole situation has been and still is but there you know from what what we hear you say it has also it's blessings in a way because we start talking more and reflecting more and seeing where the gaps are, you know, where we maybe have to work a little more on getting things not right, but better. As, yeah. As yeah. And, are. and you, you're right, Mel. And, and actually we have to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Do we, mm. we can just do it a little bit better and we could bring ourselves and narrate it a little bit more and we could back off and let people get home and not think that dying is a medical event 
dying is not a medical event. Dying is a deeply personal, social event for a person and the people who love them that might need a bit of medical tweaking. You've been listening to A Life to Die For. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you to Catherine Mannix for sharing with us her beautiful and rich experience of end-of-life care. Thank you to Daniel Cuse for the original music and to Lucy Bay for the beautiful painting. We wish you well. Any questions or comment are welcome at a life to die for podcast at gmail.com.